Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Catherine Bray. And I'm Jack King. On the show this week, it's the first of our Venice specials, and the three of us will be discussing some of the most talked about titles that premiered on the Lido. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member and receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady AQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. Welcome, welcome to you both. Listeners, if you can hear the sound of crashing waves and a thousand Woody Allen debates, it's because True to the Tradition started last year. We're coming to you direct from the Venice Beach to talk about some of the best titles from the Film Festival's 80th edition. Well, I mean, guys, as uh, pod recastings go, this is a pretty picturesque one. It's, you know, we did this last year and we're hoping that people like the ambient sound of, of the beach, but... I mean, at least for us, this is fantastic. We should paint people a bit of a picture here. Jack's sitting in his sunglasses and his little white shorts. Layla's in a bikini. I've got a vodka soda. It's all very convivial. I'm just going to contribute to this very cinematic image by sipping my Aperol spritz, as you describe it. Um, yeah, I know. I was just thinking as you were introing us later, I think this might be my fourth time on the podcast, but it's also the first time that we've done it in person. So, I mean, I think like, that's be- that's, that makes for better conversation anyway, because Zoom is stuttering and starting and all that kind of horrible digital stuff. And also, we're on a beach. <laughs> we're on a beach. It's great. It's stunning. We're on a beach, yes. We're currently looking at people, you know, wandering around with their wonderful tan lines and stuff, soaking up the rays, putting their feet in the water, yes, drinking just- alcohol. It's great. Yeah, I can't remember how many times I've done this podcast now, but last time was to talk about the god-awful Meg 2. Which I think um, was filmed here, looking at the sea. Which, yeah, <laughs> this would have been an appropriate setting. And I hope it's also appropriate to share that Layla has a shark's fin tattoo. So uh, I think every time I come on the Little White Lives podcast, we are going to talk in some small measure about sharks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, I don't think there are any sharks in the water. A couple of jellyfish, perhaps. But, I mean, it certainly isn't like a massive chore. We're kind of in the shadow of uh, the Hotel Excelsior, which is like the famous 
place on the Lido where all of the stars stay and they kind of rock up on boats just across the bridge and kind of wave at people in their suits and gowns and Panama hats. Um. On the subject of charts, we should also just quickly mention that obviously Maestro is here and Leonard Bernstein wrote West Side Story, which famously has the Jets and the Sharks. Hey! hey. <laughs> There's my through line for the day. I will have no other... Uh, good thoughts. Oh, I, I love West Side Story. This is fantastic. Now my tattoo has two meanings. Hey. Very appreciated. There we go. But there's been quite a selection of films that have happened at this festival. It's, uh, yeah, some high highs and some low lows. Uh, but to kick us off, Catherine, do you want to talk about one of the early ones at the screen, which was Michael Mann's Ferrari? Yes, something funny happens at a festival, I think, where things that happened two days ago feel like they happened two years ago. So I'm casting my mind back for this one. But Ferrari, it's a Michael Mann film. It's the first one he's made in a while. So we're all really excited for it with also that sort of sense of caution when somebody's returning, having not made any films for a bit. But this one's a banger. It stars Adam Driver as Enzo Ferrari, mm-hmm. sort of like sort of fetching salt and pepper hair. Mm-hmm. The year is 1957, and I guess the thing to know going in, which I didn't really, uh, I wasn't aware of, is that the Ferrari company was initially set up really to win races it's a race car company and the idea of it as a luxury sports goods company is kind of what comes along later so this we're we're purely in the world of the racing and of Enzo Ferrari's complicated love life yeah speaking of his complicated love life some of the controversy I have heard is that people didn't buy Penelope Cruz the picture of Spain in many ways as an Italian (laughs) ah well I gotta disagree I think she I think she made a wonderful Italian because, and I'll tell you exactly why, that what sold it for me is that Penelope Cruz, who plays Adam Driver's wife, Enzo Ferrari's wife, mm-hmm. long-suffering wife, mm-hmm. you know, it's one of those marriages where they got married super young and they've kind of grown up together and now he's off having sexy affairs with other women. Yeah, he has an extramarital child. And so you sort of see in Penelope Cruz's performance the toll that this has taken on her. And the, the particular detail that I loved that she has down is she has the walk of an old Italian woman. There's this sort of particular kind of like business where she's stiffened her hips a little bit. Because we all, I mean, we've all seen Penelope Cruz being as sexy as you like in any number of other roles. And I think of her as quite a physically fluid person. You know, the hips roll and she's one of the sexiest women alive. And in this, she's stiffened that walk. Mm. And it's like you can feel the sort of the bitterness that this character has been pushed into by her husband's choices. I thought she was extraordinary. Yeah, no, I completely agree as well. I thought she was fantastic. I mean, I know that, like, Ferrari has been... I, I, I detected kind of like it was like, a, a bit polarising. I mean, I really appreciated it too. But if there is any consensus, I felt that it was around Penelope's performance. But one of the things I really like about the biopics I've seen here, or a trend that I've detected, is that, like, they're not trying to convince you that they are credibly the person they're betraying. So Adam Driver as Ferrari is, like, House of Gucci fingers pinching kind of Italian like vaguely xenophobic would probably you know like will offend the Italian government at some point but it's great and it's like so performative and theatrical and it reminds you that these are people playing for us like they're just they're mm. having a bit of having a bit of fun on camera and I felt the same with kind of Cruz and um, I mean we talk about Maestro in that later like it's the same kind of uh, same kind of idea I think I, and I, I enjoy that personally more than like somebody like deeply trying to convince you that they are the person like obviously there are exceptions to this in the sort of arena of people playing um, 
different races, that kind of thing. There are big exceptions to this. But in general, and where we're talking about like Penelope Cruz playing an Italian, I would say let actors act. Yes, yes, yes. yes. No, I fully agree. Um, and it worth bringing in that, I mean, this was one of the films that actually had um, an exemption. They had an interim deal. So we did get to have the stars kind of coming out and Adam Driver sitting and doing panels and talking to people, unlike most of the American films. Mm. And uh, yes, he gave an amazing the Venice speech. of the strike. The big strike. <laughs> yeah. No actors, except yeah. when there are actors. Yeah. <laughs> yes, when Benicio Del Toro for no reason. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he. I think he delivered something pretty powerful. He was talking mm. about kind of the importance of, um, you know, Neon and A24 being able to kind of uh, manage to meet people's demands and give people living wages even though kind of the big studios don't well you just put it as directly as you possibly can which is like if these smaller companies can do it then why can't major studios you make a lot more you make money. a lot more money like significantly more money well um, moving on next i mean jack you've already kind of touched upon this one uh mm. you were impressed by maestro i believe Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, for context, it's the Leonard Bernstein biopic, who was a composer, um, maybe more familiar to American audiences because he did the talk shows and everything, had more of a familiar public persona for people over in the States. Um, at least I hope I'm not projecting my own kind of like Bernstein ignorance. But obviously I uh, did, uh, you know, did the songbook for West Side Story, um, was, you know, was incredibly famous, one of the more famous composers in US history. And this is, I think, a fairly unconventional retelling of his life story. It was very, very knotty. He was, you know, he, he was queer in some way, whether it was bisexual or gay, but also had uh, a, a, a wife and kids. And it was just a, it was a, yeah, it was um, one of those classic examples of a, of a queer man living at that time, but couldn't, you know, fully embrace the queerness because it was impermissible politically, culturally. Um, and yeah, so it follows from, at some point in the 1940s, he did this great performance. He stepped in for a composer that was ill on the day. For a conductor. Yeah, for a compo- sorry, for a conductor, thank you. Um, <clears throat> and uh, and yeah, and then it just kind of goes from there and like retells his, um, his story in an unconventional manner, I think. Um, and I just loved it. I thought it was really swoony, romantic, so incredibly well directed by um, by Bradley Cooper, um, who's kind of like, I mean, I, I for me, it's kind of like it's, it's a level above A Star Is Born. I think A Star Is Born is so visually wonderful. Um, there are so many great, you know, kind of like sh- like uh, like shot sequences and the camera movement on some of the scenes is wonderful. It opens with this great scene where it's like it's shot. It's, it begins in black and white, and this opening scene is this like really lovely uh, chiaroscuro where it's like it's like really dark in some areas and really bright and he's like he wakes up in bed gets the call that he's going to come down and um you know step in for this composer which is going to like you know set his career in motion and he rips this uh this uh, curtain open the whole room is like filled with light and then it kind of like moves down into the auditorium where he's gonna he's gonna compose he's gonna compose um or conducts i'm getting the two mixed up um and the camera both. just well but yeah and the camera <laughs> just shoot, the camera just shoots down into the um conducting stand and it's just it's just really great and it's i, I was yeah just really taken by it. i've just rattled on so much no. trying to get a bit of uh trying to get a bit of synopsis in there as well for context but no it's really great i mean great i feel like i'm understating it because i haven't actually seen this film yet but you've got me so excited to see it but what i do have for you in a in a maestro kind of arena is a leonard bernstein travel tip if, mm. I, if, if you'll indulge me <laughs> I was in New York in April uh, staying near the Greenwood Cemetery 
Mm. Fantastic cemetery. I don't know how you feel about cemeteries. Wait, next to or in? Next to. Okay. Next to. I was scoping it out for future okay. real estate. No. Uh, <laughs> it's the kind of place I'd like to be buried. It's Cherry Blossom throughout, and Basquiat and Leonard Bernstein are buried there. So you can do a little pilgrimage to go and see them, which is exactly what I did, and it yeah. was gorgeous. I imagine that'll be a very popular thing after after Maestro comes out. What did you think? I, I think there's a couple of things that kind of went a bit off in the edit where I felt that maybe kind of it felt a bit television, not cinema. I, I loved the first kind of segment that was the black and white one and there were like plenty of moments, but there were a few things where I was just like, this scene doesn't quite fit here. Mm. Um, but I would say, I mean, it kind of frames it both in the poster and in terms of who gets first billing as like, this is not actually just a Leonard Bernstein story. This is really a story about his wife, Felicia, who mm. I wouldn't say is long suffering because I, I think even though there is that issue of like a heteronormative marriage and a man that is queer because of this, you know, and dealing with that in the circumstances of his time, like they very, very much loved each other. Mm. I found that quite moving. Yeah, I mean, Carrie Mulligan's performance is fantastic. Like, really, really, really engaging. Um, and it works on so many different emotional levels. When I walked out, I thought there was, like, this... Um, just this great tragedy of circumstance mm. where they're so... I mean, and this this wraps up towards the end. I, I, I'm, I'm trying not to speak too specifically on certain scenes. There are so many great scenes in there, including, like, a, a seven-minute yeah. sequence, which, uh, where, he, like, it's, I think it's actually the first time you really see him com, uh, conduct... And it, it, it's, it's, I know it's a real-life event where he conducted this great performance in a, in a cathedral, but the way that um, Cooper shoots it is just incredible. And yeah, like it's, there, there are just, there's so much um, emotional depth to, the, to both of their performances, and it's just, it's just sad because this is kind of like, a, a, I think, a relationship that would have um, played out differently in different times. And who would have guessed, right, like 10 years ago, Bradley Cooper, the guy from The Hangover? Mm. It's crazy yeah. to me. The, the direction yeah. his career has gone in. I know, and as much as there has been a little bit of um, controversy about the prosthetics online, I think they work. I think. It oh yeah, great. absolutely. <laughs> well, yeah, that's it. I, I don't. I don't think you'll, um, especially if you're if you're more familiar with Bernstein, you're not going to kind of like walk away thinking, "Wow, that was so," you know, I, that was like maybe like that, that was so identical or whatever. But no, I, 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 it was it was theatrical and, and worked really well for me. I think it, like it, it, there was a there was like more emotionality to it that I thought was more convincing because it's like it's not trying to like tell you mm. his his career and like like I said like there are there's it's very sparse you actually see him conduct or like see him working it's more telling you the emotional story of his relationship yeah and his you know exploration of his sexuality mm. and things like that um but there are so many great scenes in there so so many great scenes I agreed and I was very impressed by a lot of the dialogue I found it very moving I laughed yeah. I cried I learned about conducting who could ask for anything more? Captain, we could ask for something more on your next one. <laughs> um, we're not kind of just doing highlights of the festival. And this is actually something that, like, I believe Little White Lies has chosen not to cover in any other it's sense. It's a low light. <laughs> it's a low light. But I feel like it, we have to mention the fact that there were some controversial figures this year. There was Besson, there was Woody Allen, uh, and there was Roman Polanski. Not a one got a good reception. 
And I believe the nadir was the Polanski, which you're going to tell us about. Yeah, completely respect the decision not to review, but we're doing reportage here, right? And it is a big story that uh, Polanski has has been selected for this festival. Why? I really did think that the climactic scene of Ferrari was going to be the biggest car crash I saw while I was here, but it's, no, it's the Polanski film, The Palace, uh, which I did watch and is absolutely one of the worst films that I think I've seen, well, certainly at Venice, but mm. in years, really. It's, so it's set in this luxury hotel on the eve of the millennium, and it feels like the script was written right around then as well. Like, the kind of humour that's in this movie is stuff like, oh, my goodness, the old lady's little dog has gone into her luggage and pulled out a vibrator. Scandal! Like, it's that kind of two, really early 2000s sort of stuff about old ladies having plastic surgery and 80-year-old billionaires being horny for their young wife. I mean, I... It, it's distressing to me that these images will live in my brain forever because it's also not forgettable. Like, it's so bad mm. that it's seared into my brain. I really feel like someone needed to give Mickey Rourke better advice because he appears in this <laughs> movie as a kind of cross between Donald Trump and Hulk Hogan. He's this sort of mahogany colour with a blonde wig that hilariously gets blown off by a champagne cork at one point mm. and I don't think it's a spoiler well it is a spoiler but I don't mind spoiling this movie <laughs> to say that the final shot of the film is a penguin humping a dog or is the dog humping a penguin I don't know I'd lost the world to live by that point <laughs> but it's just one of those movies where people wander around kind of getting into farcical scrapes that are meant to be hilarious and mm. none of it works none of it I don't think there's a it's meant to be a comedy and it's there's probably a quote-unquote joke uh, in every scene and I don't I didn't like smile it wasn't like I didn't laugh I didn't smile and you know Polanski obviously is a child rapist so I mean we don't even have to say, say allegedly it's like that's on record oh no I he was convicted obviously obviously yeah he admits it he admits yeah, it it's, uh, it's insane to me that someone can make work that bad and have that history and still be playing at the Venice Film Festival what the actual mm. Mm. Yeah, well, the good vibes of the beach. We'll have to try and uh, cancel that out in our in our minds because that is uh, truly depressing news. But I yep. believe currently sitting at zero percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So uh, it'll yeah. stay that way until somebody decides they can make a reputation for themselves <laughs> off the back of positively reviewing this absolute dog. Can we swear? I mean, yeah. we should be allowed to swear about Roman Polanski, let's face it. Yeah, I, I didn't see it, and I'd love to say that that was like a grand political gesture, like a statement of defiance and all that. I was just too lazy and missed it. I went for drinks. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't I don't need to. I don't need to see this. I didn't see Jacques when it was here in 2019 as well. I don't, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't need to watch a rapist film. I thought it was going to reignite all that sort of tired old uh, separating the art from the artist debate, but it's like, mm. what art? There's no art here. <laughs> Uh, but Jack, you, I believe, did find some art in like one of the smaller titles, a film called Horde. I did, yeah, Horde, which was um, really good. I, I, for context, I am um, so I'm I'm with GQ and I profiled Joseph Quinn, who's the star of this film, um, at the end of last year. And you know that was kind of like when I when we when I got to the inevitable question, when I got to the inevitable question towards the end of that conversation, where I was like, so what's what's coming next? What are you really excited for? It was just Horde, Horde, Horde for, mm. for minutes on end. 
Um, like she was so excited for for the for the director um, Lunica Moon and like for the, for the star of the, the other star of the film um, Sarah Lightfoot Leon who are both um, I think um, debutantes. But it's great. It's it's um it's kind of like the stories in the title in a way. So it's a uh, and maybe we should clarify that it's H O A R D. Yes, not yes, yes, yes. W H O R E D. It's for yeah, an yeah. audio audience. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I was just about to clarify. So it's about uh, a, a girl who grows up with her mom. I think it's in. I, I want to say it's around the nineties. It's a very nineties movie. It has that like, kind of like sensibility and style and aesthetic. And her mom is a hoarder, and you know the the, the house is just like packed with you know piles of newspapers and there's this one bit where the girl falls over and played by his, uh, well not well eventually later on played by Sarah Lightfoot Leon like who put, sticks her hand under under one of the newspapers and finds a mound of dead rats all tied together like a rat king it's it's really really grim so it kind of plays out in some ways like a typical coming of age um i think it follows with the recent trend in british cinema of like having these great um uh, women debut filmmakers coming out with these great yeah. movies like like how to have sex like after sun obviously they're thematically distinct um they're talking about different scenarios and situations about different characters um this one was definitely the gnarliest definitely the grossest because there are like some elements of like real body horror in there like there's this thing that she uh, that she does the, the the protagonist where she like she, like spits in her hand or like spits in like this food in her hand and then eats it because it's something that kind of like echoed through from her childhood and it's mm. all about the trauma that echoes through from the childhood because things happen again i don't want to spoil it and i think it's kind of pre- like things happen in the first act which then echo through later on in her life um, and then Joseph Quinn bounds in, everybody's favourite Stranger Things star, um, and he's just excellent as this um, this other. I, again, I should say, is she she um, I can't I can't say it without spoiling, but for whatever reason, he comes in. They have a knotty, strange, eerie relationship. I think he kind of is simultaneously a brotherly figure, but then also somebody that she desires at this period of like late teendom. Um, there is it kind of like toes the taboo line between like an incestuous desire and it's it's really in so many ways it's nasty and so singular Um, and um, yeah I thought it it was such a calling card for for Luna Kamun the director it's it's really visually very 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 distinct from anything else I've seen from a a debut it's it's not without its flaws Hmm. Um, and you mentioned the DO and you mentioned How to Have Sex the the, director of How to Have Sex Molly Manning Walker actually shot this so she's sort of partly responsible for, for the look of this thing yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting as well because I didn't I, I, knowing that shared relationship between the films, um, I you know I wouldn't have been able to guess based on the style. They're, I think they're quite distinct visually. Mm. Um, you know, um, I don't I don't want to get too much into how to have sex, but no, it was um, Horde was um, yeah really what a what a wonderful wonderful surprise, and I wasn't I, I wasn't surprised that Joseph Quinn was so into it. I do also think that like Stranger Things hands and like because I've. Joseph Quinn has obviously exploded with this insane stand-in since he mm. played uh, Eddie Munson uh, in the, I think, in the fourth season of Stranger Things. 
Um, yeah. like, he had to have a bodyguard. Yeah, he, yeah. so many fans here. Yeah, yeah, there are. He's like the Harry Styles <laughs> of, this, of this film, of this Venice. Don't worry, darling. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and no, he, uh, I, I feel as though they're going to go in and be a little bit surprised and shocked by some of the content because it is... There, you know what? I watched. Um, we watched Poor Things as well. You know, obviously the the Lamp of Moss, and there are elements of body horror in that. But like, I was never squeamish with it. Yeah. With this, there were parts where I had to look away, and I was like, "That's just really, really gross." Like delightfully so, like delightfully gross out, and deliberately so. Um, but no, I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, it does feel like I, I. I so distinctly remember when one of my husband's colleagues was just a huge um, Jennifer Lawrence fan. And then she told me that she was going to just go, you know, in a very sweet, kind, not particularly edgy person. Um, and then she was telling me that, like, because she loved Jennifer Lawrence, she was going to go see Mother that evening. <laughs> so I wonder whether that's going to be similar, that there's going to be a load of Stranger Things fans that are just like, oh, great, the guy from the show is in the thing. It's so funny when that happens, isn't it? Like, people off to see Chris on the, in the West End because... Harry Potter's in it, all yeah. that, that, that fan crossover stuff. I think it's great. I mean, there must be people who started as Twilight fans and have since seen some of the great auteurs of world cinema because we're glad to see Twilight again. And Kristen Stewart, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, but we've got another smaller title from you, Catherine. Can you tell us about Tatami? Yeah, so this is a fantastic film. It's playing in the Horizonte sidebar at Venice where you tend to find that it's, it's not going to be like it's not going to be Michael Mann. Uh, thank God it's not going to be Polanski. Uh, this is co- a co-directed film from Guy Nativ and Zah Amir Abrahimi. Now, she was the lead in Holy Spider a couple of years ago. Really uh, interesting oh, wow. film. Yeah. And she's also in this as an actor. It's a kind of a two-hander between her and Ariane Mandy. They both play women who are experts in judo. Uh, one is the coach, one is the judo champion. It's the judo world championships and they're representing Iran. And they start to do really well. And you think, oh great, you know, this is this is wonderful news for their country. Not so fast. Iran are concerned that if she does too well, if, if their champion does too well, she might face Israel in the final championship. And the problem is because those two countries are in conflict, Ah. From Iran's perspective, the possibility of losing to Israel is so horrifying mm. that the government agents ring up and ask her to throw the match or withdraw or pretend to be injured to avoid this sort of possible humiliation. She doesn't want to throw the match, obviously. Right. So what you have here is, uh, I don't think I've ever seen anything that's sort of quite this combination of, of like a thrilling sports movie. The judo is filmed fantastically, really kinetic cinematography from... Todd Martin and then the politics of it are are just incredibly gripping and realistic and well researched and and, coming from an authentic place with these filmmakers so it's almost like you get the kind of the the excitement of a sports movie combined Mm. with the legitimacy and social justice and kind of campaigning aspects of a, a political film which I mean they both work really well like we've all sat through sports movies where you're kind of going like well this is quite entertaining and I'm into the boxing but do I really buy this bit in the third act where they're like actually I'm not going to fight the big fight you're like yeah you're, you're going to fight the big fight <laughs> it's the, the, the kind of marrying it to this very serious very realistic political kind of context 
it just gave it so much meat and heft. Uh, and similarly, I think we've all sat through movies that are trying to draw our attention to a social injustice, but they're not mm. exactly a gripping time to watch. Mm, yeah. So and it, it, it melds those two elements brilliantly. I really enjoyed it. That's, that sounds fantastic. I mean, like, there really has been quite a, a, a great bit of world cinema. I mean, it's tricky covering this festival because obviously... You know, you want to kind of get your commissions. You want to kind of do the things that are going to be the you know biggest titles and and, and get the things that people are most excited about. But I feel like Venice is the festival for undiscovered gems. Like last year, it was Saint Omer. I think that people were just kind of like blown away by like this is really a festival in which these kind of there's a bit of space to breathe, so you can kind of word of mouth things that are brilliant can actually get their time in the sun they've got some great programmers uh and i think this is this is actually happening inside bars you know across the board at festivals these days but you've got people like beatrice florentino programming the settimana the venice critics week you've got people like gaia furra programming venice days i think she's the first female director of that strand that we've had over at Cannes, you've got people like Arva Kahan programming Cannes Critics Week mm. uh, it's a really interesting time for festivals, it feels like they're finally shaking off the idea that some people have to have been doing this stuff for 40 years before they get put in charge of things mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's, it feels to me like it is becoming more egalitarian and more about taste and have you got the goods It's yeah, it's really interesting and like Jack, I know you were saying yesterday that you thought that this maybe has been collectively like the strongest lineup that you've seen for, a, you know, amongst all of the festivals that you've been to. This has been like one of the top contenders. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't been as adventurous or curious as I'd like to ordinarily be. I'm also kind of treating this as a bit of a holiday. So I've been like, spending a lot of days at the beach and like <laughs> uh, yesterday afternoon, I missed the Hamaguchi because I was watching Arsenal v Man United. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> I got very drunk. Um, so thankfully, I didn't then go to the Hamaguchi because I would have... Um, made uh, lessened everybody else's experience I'm sure um, but no it's been really really great I mean it's I, 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 I don't think I've seen anything that I've really disliked I've seen at least three films inclusive of Maestro uh, Poor Things we're not talking about now um and actually Priscilla, which we will get on to, which I was just really blown away by. Can well, we use that I mean, as a segue to talk about Priscilla? Yeah, no yeah. time like the present. Yeah. What did you think of Priscilla? <laughs> Sophia Coppola's biopic of Priscilla Presley. Well, I was just so disappointed. No. <laughs> I, yeah, it's so terrible. Uh, no, I'm I'm actually not much of a um, Coppola girly in a way. I mean I I, 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 I had a my relationship to her personally is kind of is kind of gone a bit backwards where like when I was a teenager I remember watching Marianne Spinette and um uh, you know, kind of like some of the more undersung movies around then, but then I didn't watch like The Virgin Suicides until maybe like a month ago. And I watched it and I was like, this is great. Yeah, great movie. movie great out. movie. Also also watched um watched Stone somewhere. Cold Take. Yeah. Thanks, I know. <laughs> yeah. Um and uh, so and I'd I'd heard there's the whispers always go around in festivals, right? About these movies before they come out because they they do get pre-screened for certain very specific critics and journalists. There's also distributor screenings, as you were saying earlier. And the word for Priscilla that was kind of like going around was it wasn't, you know, maybe a bit off, a bit, bit mid. I'd heard from people kind of like through Chinese whispers that like they like some people really hated it. Um, so maybe it was a product of the fact that I was going in with lowered expectations. But I thought it was really fantastic. Like immediately a top tier coppola. Hmm. I guess I should then. Like, are, you including, are, you, are you including Francis Ford when you're talking about like, <laughs> Dr. Um, Sophia Coppola? No, we're, we're, so we're, we're, we are talking, we're talking about tops off, I oh, guess. Okay. Um, but 
but yeah, and in case you don't know who um, Priscilla Presley um, is, it's about um, her relationship with Elvis, basically. Um, um, Elvis Presley, of course. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and it kind of maps uh, their relationship from when they meet in Germany when she is like, a very young teenager. Yeah, they um, specify ninth grade, but I'm not ninth, really sure with American ages what that means. She's like means. 14, oh, okay. I think. Okay. I mean, don't... I'm, I'm not sure about the, his, the, the history, but mm-hmm. I think in the film she's around 14 when they first meet. And it just it just kind of plays with, like, the inherent creepiness of their relationship to begin with because of the age gap without battering it over, battering you over the head with it. And also conjuring a bit of taboo sympathy for Elvis in a way, mm-hmm. especially with that first act and like bleeding into the second. Eventually, you know, spoiler alert, he does some really monstrous things which are both a product of the times and the kind of like the gender norms and standards of like Mad Men 1950s, 60s America, where, you know, he's very much like overbearing, literally so because he's six foot five and like whenever he's around the um, the, the, the leaders, Priscilla, Katie Spaney, by the way, is fantastic. Yeah. And, uh, really, really really thought she was um, so gripping and um, emotionally dexterous and everything. I, I, I thought the performance was fantastic. Um, and also, like, re- like, very credible in all of the different ages that she plays. Like, when she's playing a young teenager, she feels like a she feels like a twelve-year-old, <laughs> and when she's when she's playing older, because it maps through to I think the seventies when Elvis was in Vegas, yeah. um, as everybody knows from the movie um, Elvis by Baz Luhrmann. Um, it's uh, it's it's yeah, like you, she's um, she she places within those kind of um, she leaps the generations yeah. so so credibly, um, so convincingly, and yeah, it's just it's it's a really naughty and kind of gross film in some ways. But then it's also just quite, quite tragic. And I don't think it... I personally didn't feel as though it kind of um, places kind of like a moral judgment on mm. anybody for any of their misdeeds or any of like the, the, the questionable relationships or stuff within the movie. Um, whilst also drawing attention to the fact that Priscilla Presley, by dint of the time and by dint of the kind quite self-interested person that she was in a relationship with, you know had a really rough time of it yeah. but, but the thing that I was most impressed by is it doesn't then descend into vilifying Elvis for it you yeah. know I mean I think as far as I can recall I, I don't I think the um, the Presley family didn't want to have his music in the film right because well Priscilla Presley was a executive producer and it is based on the book that she wrote Elvis and Me which right. is a kind of biography of their time together right but yeah. uh, yes, the Elvis estate did not allow them kind of free access to all of the song archives in the way that they did with Baz Luhrmann's uh, Elvis. Well, yeah, and I think it, it works to great effect. I mean, be it it's by Kismet, because it's not really it? about because him. I'm sure if they could have got the rights to the songs, it would have been slathered in them. But there's something very particular about the way that you're inhabiting her world, yeah, exactly. not his world. It's in the Baz Luhrmann, it makes sense that those songs are kind of bone deep part yeah. of the text because it is about him. But mm-hmm. I think if you're going to make a movie about her, mm-hmm. there's a certain sort of logic to it not being drenched in Elvis's songs. We're in her headspace. Mm-hmm. She's not the creator of those those recordings. Um, and I think that plays really, really nicely. That's one of the things I liked about it, even though I'm sure it was kind of a necessity as the mother of invention type of choice. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think um, the film does other great things to kind of communicate and convey like the Elvis mania of the time anyway. Like, con- like Priscilla is constantly surrounded by like the Elvis groupies, right? And like, mm. there's a very pointed comparison between the, his relationship to his like female fans and how much he kind of like saps, like 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 
sucks energy and sucks like so much ego from yeah. that. But then you know, then then also the same kind of has like kind of like the same thing, but very specifically with um with um with with Priscilla. It'll I, make a lovely companion piece to Behind the Candelabra. Yeah, totally. The Michael Douglas biopic of uh, Liberace, where which we see from the perspective of his lover, played by Matt Damon, mm. who was this young guy, very starry-eyed, very kind of couldn't believe his luck when this famous man who was so wealthy, showed uh, an interest in him. And then gradually the famous person starts to make over the younger person in their image. There's a bit of that in mm. Priscilla. He's, he's telling her totally. how to dress. He's telling her how he wants her to behave. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it, it is creepy. And I think mm. one of the things that I think works about Sofia Coppola as a filmmaker is how good she is with objects. Yeah. You know, a false eyelash, a yeah. stocking in the post, the texture of carpet that we see perfectly manicured, toenails yeah. sinking into. She's very good on all of that. And sometimes I think it can be a problem in her filmmaking. But for something like this, it mm. sort of works really well because we're dealing with a main character who was treated as an object, as a mm. doll, as an accessory by the person who ostensibly loved her most. Yeah. 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 I mean, I have to say, I did very much relate to uh, one scene in the film in that, like, when I was giving birth for the first time, I got a blow dry. I got my make. I spent <laughs> an hour yeah. on my makeup. I wanted my baby to think I was pretty. I was all done up to the nines. I wore my fanciest stuff. <laughs> oh, so funny. Gosh. <laughs> it's an instinct that you, yeah. can, uh, that you can have. But yeah, I really like the tone that it struck because whilst it can kind of acknowledge, like, yes, like the creepiness, the, 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 the difficulty of this relationship and the sort yeah. of like really tough power dynamic that's going on in it, like, it still kind of captures like that this is like a teenage dream come true for a young woman and like how magical so much of it that, like, oh my God, Elvis comes and you <laughs> become his like obsession and like how wonderful that could feel. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It feels like one of the themes of the festival has been possessive men. Yeah. We saw it in Poor Things, which is probably mm -hmm. my favourite film of the festival so far. There's a bit of that in Ferrari. Mm. It's all over Priscilla. It's in the Woody Allen film. Which it's in I The Beast. Get into here, but, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like, I think what's what's really deft about it, though, is that, like even though it, it, it highlights, you know, her loss of autonomy and how overbearing he was and all of these kind of things. Like, isn't averse to sympathising with him at the same time. Mm. And sympathising with a very, very particular kind of life experience. I mean, like, one of the, one of the maybe one of the first, within, must be within the first dozen lines you, you get from Elvis, he's talking about his mum having literally died the year prior, which is covered in depth in Elvis. And I think there will be a lot of people cross-comparing the two texts because they've come like within a year of each other yeah. i think to both advantage yeah I have to say. totally 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 talk about companion pieces yeah. i mean like and a lot of people are going to be comparing jacob elordi and austin butler as well and i i love how they have completely different interpretations of the same you know monolithic cultural figure because like with with elordi he's kind of like you know i i wouldn't say that either performance is better or more credible or more interesting or whatever but like i like how elordi is like kind of like he's he quite a gross guy like half the half the film he spends in bed and like he's just kind of like there's this one great scene i loved it where it's just that he their his idea of like a really romantic time together with priscilla is just staying in bed and watching movies and eating food and it just kind of cuts between them in like this very lush kind of ornate kind of baroque bed in this bedroom 
which but like it just like it feels like it must stink because they've been in there for such a long time and like it just cuts to like um this tray of food coming to the side of the coming to the door and then it'll cut to like the food being gone and then they're all in bed like you know smoking cigarettes and you know watching movies on the tv and it's like it just feels really grim but then for him who's you know who's also you know kind of drug addled and all this kind of stuff like he was like then that was like his kind of like his bliss mode you know but it was because he didn't want to go outside because he was constantly harassed by people whenever he left the house like whenever Elvis left the building assuming laundry is being done and taking away the drug addled that's my idea of my dream week as well (laughs) room service movies and staying in bed for a week with like a beautiful person with a giant beehive or kind of some like six foot man with a with a big quiff yeah. Yeah, I, I don't believe I felt that grim. It's, like, it's, t- it's one of the best times. This is the really what distinguishes, yeah. I think, two types of people: the people that want to eat in bed and the people that don't. Yeah, and I'm the one go outside. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe it just seemed quite smelly to me. Well, <laughs> criticism taken on board in in uh, in two respects. <laughs> Let us know. Right in. Are you a food in bed person? Or... <laughs> but before we wrap up, we've got some more titles coming next week. Some of that we've hinted at. But do you have anything left that you're seeing the festival that you're particularly excited about? Gonna get. I have a little annual tradition. I mean, I'm calling it a tradition. I started this last year. They seem to always play an Ozu film in the in the classics strand, and it's quite nice after mm. engaging with films about which you know nothing mm. going in. I mean, that's one of the great pleasures of film festivals. But it's quite nice after that to to go into just something that was made 50 years ago mm. that maybe you haven't seen before. Yeah. So yeah, I'll be I'll be off uh, checking out the Ozu in classics. Yeah, as we speak, um, Hannah Strong, a digital editor, is like avoiding the fact that it is a beautiful day and the beach is available to go and watch the Friedkin. Yeah, um, the Exorcist. The Exorcist. Yeah. Yes, not their new Friedkin, the the Exorcist, and you know can't criticize her for that it's a it's a it's a great one well they also did a screening maybe maybe this wasn't public but they did a screening at like 11 in the morning i was like why would you want to watch a le- the exorcist at 11 <laughs> like it feels, it feels like a firmly like midnight maybe like 10 o'clock movie unless it's halloween like, oh, well, so, this is the so other creepy. two types of people i suppose it's the bed eaters the non-bed eaters the 11 a.m exorcist people where it's just like that sounds wonderful and yeah. then the jacks of the world um, and then, like, yeah, for me, films I'm really looking forward to. It's um, Hitman, the Richard Linklater film later, because mm-hmm. I just like really like Linklater, even though he's a bit hit and miss recently. Um, and uh, I, I need, but... to, I, I, well, I need to see the Hamaguchi film as well. Yeah, uh, Evil does not exist. Is that right? I yes. mean, I think people saw it last night. Everybody was raving about it. Um, I'm seeing it at screening tomorrow. Yes, because um, like I said, I was, I was watching football. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll be with you at the Richard Linklater. I disagree that he's hit and miss. I love them all. Well, is that true? I've just put that on record. That could All be, right, another, that could be another podcast, it? Like... <laughs> but thank you both very much. This has been awesome. And yeah, have a really wonderful rest of the festival. And uh, yeah, more time on the beach and more time watching great movies and less Polanski, please. Yes, please. <laughs> yes, yes. Cheers, cheers. So if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, it's a hybrid of a Venice special and a return to normal programming. I'll be discussing some of the other big titles and doing our two regular review shots too. We have Pablo Lorraine's reimagining of Pinochet Chile in Elcom, moving romance past lives and an interview with its incredible director, Celine Song. And you'll be getting more hot takes about the hottest films in Venice. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif. My guests this week were Catherine Bray and Jack King. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.